Welcome to another uh, in our podcast series, Conversations with Sound Artists. This is Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute, and this is a co-production between the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. Really um, excited today to talk about sound for virtual reality. And the guest on the podcast today is Tim Gedimer, who is a, uh, you kind of become the go-to guy for a high quality sound for VR. Tim has got a very illustrious set of credits, starting in, in sort of more traditional cinema post-production. You worked on Menace to Society and The Mask and Dumb and Dumber and some amazing work on U571 in the sound design and, and sound effects editorial realm. And then you kind of moved into computer animation and, and, and digital stuff, and that's kind of led a segue for you into, into VR when it's it's still pretty early days in this field. So I'm really pleased that you could come in. We just finished VR yes. LA here, yes, we did. here in LA, and I, I'm grateful for you to come in and talk with us uh, about sound for VR. How did that transition happen for you? How did you find yourself doing VR projects? Uh, well, first of all, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, how did I come to, to do VR projects? You, you know, um, it's a it's a good Dolby story, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, a couple of years ago, uh, probably in um, early to mid-2014, I got a call uh, from, I've, I can't remember exactly who it was at Dolby, but someone at Dolby called me and said, hey, we've, we're working with this company called Jaunt, and they've got this virtual reality camera um, that they're doing experiments with and tests on. Um, but uh, now that they're they're getting close to actually having uh, 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 something that they can show, they're realizing that they need some sound work done. So they contacted Dolby to say, "Hey, we we need to have some sound done on on these experiments, these tests that we're doing. Uh, you know, can you help us with that?" And so uh, so I forget who it was. It was. Uh, but we're not really a post-production facility, right? Like exactly. That. So, yeah. so, 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 you know, immediately uh, the people um, who they contacted just happened to know us because we had been doing other work mm -hmm. with Dolby for years on the feature film side and uh, and uh, even on the game side, and they thought, well, this is uh, virtual reality is kind of a little more technical. It's got an interactive aspect to it. Uh, there's, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe you want to talk to these guys, uh, Source Sound. Uh, and so uh, John called and said, hey, we, we got this thing called virtual reality going on. We, we need to have some sound done. Are you interested? And I kind of looked at my watch and I said, well, we're really busy. We got all this other stuff going on. Um, I don't even know what you're talking about. I've never seen it. Um, yeah. So why don't you hit me to what it is that you're talking about? And uh, and this we'll, was and two we'll years ago. This is over two years. Ago. This is this is. The, but this is how fast this is. This is how fast moving. it's gone. Yeah. 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 Exactly. It seems in in VR terms, in modern VR terms, it's it's like a decade. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So uh, so they uh, they say they invite me up to San Francisco and um, to see the technology, and so I go up there. Uh, you know, still looking at my watch, uh, checking my, my emails, doing all my traditional media stuff. And uh, they bring me into this, into this conference room and uh, they have this, uh, you know, little um, viewer that they, they are showing their, their technology off in. And they strap it on my head and they say, well, just look around for a little bit. I, I go, okay, I'll, I'll look around and I start looking around. And I'm like, uh, is this live action that you guys shot? Uh, I, I've seen this kind of thing before in... Game engine and or uh, you know in the game world of, of, of 360 visuals, but this is this is 3D visuals captured with some camera device and it's seamless. And I don't see any seams. What are you guys doing mm -hmm. here? Uh, and uh, they explained a little bit about the technology, and it was it was really immediately within a minute of seeing it, I realized that we had to be uh, a front runner and, uh, and and involved in it immediately. Um, that sound was going to be critically important uh, in bringing any any kind of story, any kind of uh, vision to life in this in this medium. Clearly, sound was was going to be a big deal. So uh, so I was a hundred percent convinced right on the spot um, as soon as I saw John's uh, camera work for the first time. And and now Source Sound, which is which is uh, your company, mm -hmm. how much of your business is, is comprised of VR work? At this point, right now we're running at about twenty percent of our businesses VR work, yeah. um, and it's growing. Uh, but the thing is, and that we're, we're going to be chasing that percentage because the rest of our business is growing as well, uh -huh. right? So, uh, so although VR has huge growth potential, 
it's, uh, you know, it's growing at about the same pace as the rest of our company is. So um, if it gets to be more than 25 or 30 percent in the next year, I, I might be surprised at that. Yeah. So th- those first pieces that you uh, collaborated with uh, Jonathan, um, w- were those narrative pieces or were they just sort of visual tests or what, were, what, what was the content? Well, there were, there were uh, I believe, four pieces of content uh, initially. There, was, uh, three, there were three narrative pieces. Uh, one was a, a, a war-type narrative piece called The Mission. Uh, another was a horror piece called Black Mass. Uh, and the third piece was, uh, was a monster movie uh, mm-hmm. called Kaiju Fury. Those were the first three that we jumped on. And uh, crazy as it is, um, they called us... They, they wanted to do uh, a demonstration during Halloween. Uh, and this was 2014 now, uh, Halloween 2014. And I got the call uh, about mm, 10 days prior to Halloween for us <laughs> to do all three of those pieces mm-hmm. uh, in one go. So, you know, not only have we never done anything like this before, um, there weren't any tools available to do any of that work either. Yeah. So, uh, so it was a, a big uh, tech scramble uh, for us to figure out what it was that we needed to do in order to achieve what they were they were uh, trying to do, which was essentially, uh, you know, full spatial audio, uh, you know, and uh, headphone playback. Um, so the so what the, what they were trying to do at that point was to have a fully immersive audio environment in a three sixty degree space that you could you could turn your head and objects would move. Right. Uh, and and so how did you even? What, what was the lay of the land at that point in terms of uh, in terms of the tool set that was available for you and what are those how did the how did how did those first few pieces work yeah that's that's a really good question I mean when we when we first started this thing we we hadn't even heard of I mean my wife had heard of ambisonic audio because she had been using it in research and some of her uh, PhD uh, friends had been uh, researching ambisonic audio uh, you know over the years. But I wasn't really familiar with it uh, myself, and so we had to get r- familiar with it really fast. Um, and at the time, at that moment, uh, there wasn't any any other um, way for us to get something like that done uh, in ten days, other than to uh, co-opt the Amazonic technology mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, you know use the head tracking capability and the, the rotational uh, capability. Uh, that it has in order to achieve what John was trying to do. Uh, at that time, Atmos wasn't available in that um, arena, right. although it was Dolby who provided the expertise technically for us to achieve the, the final result. It, it, if it wasn't for Dolby, that it would not have happened, for sure, because <laughs> we don't have engineers like that. Uh, on staff. Yeah, and We're, it was a big science project, right? It really was, yeah. And I'm sure, I, you know, I, I remember... Uh, uh, you know, late night phone calls to people at Dolby, um, engineers who were, you know, scratching their heads and writing code as we were speaking, trying to get to the finish line on, while we were doing the creative work, they were doing the technical work. And, and we knew that somewhere around October 29th, October 30th, we were going to have to come together and say, okay, here's the track. And now it needs to be put in this format and it needs to head track, uh, you know, effectively. So... Uh, fortunately, Dolby has some great engineers, and yeah. they sorted that out quickly, and were able to to get us to the finish line. and And they had a, a huge rousing success with with those first three pieces. So, with those first couple of pieces, what um, what worked for you about the format, and what were the biggest kind of stumbling blocks? You mean in terms of of, uh, of doing I, the doing the work? I, yeah, or even I, I'm I'm curious about what worked for you creatively. Like what oh. what. Um, what made you excited about trying to like other people could have said like, Oh, this is too much trouble. I'm got, I'm, I'm taking my ball and bat and going home. Okay. Sure. sure. But what, what was it about, about the, about the, the promise of sound for VR that kind of hooked you in that made you want to explore it further? Well, for sure. Uh, I'm, I, I was immediately intrigued with the idea that we were not, no longer working in channels. Um, I always felt that channels were, were limiting, uh, I always felt that we were moving towards something else. Uh, in my career, we've gone from stereo. We, we made the transition to digital pretty much at the beginning of my career, mm-hmm. right around 88 mm-hmm. is where things started going digital. Um, and and I, I never felt like 5.1 was really where we were going. Uh, and even to this day, uh, you know, I go to a movie theater and it's, it, it's not a particularly... Uh, 
satisfying experience to me anyway mm-hmm. uh, as a as a representation of the work that we do um, you know I, I I feel like virtual reality and the the 360 degree environment is the place where we were going right there's there there isn't any place else that I can see where we need to go other than a full spherical image mm-hmm. um, non channel based and uh, em- and emulations of of either reality or other realities. I, to me, that's where we were going. So I felt immediately a kinship with that because it, it resonated with me personally in my career. We're moving towards something. Where where is it going? This to me, that's where it was going for for me personally. So um, so that that's what attracted me. Yeah, you know, right away. And and on a technical side. Kind of the the challenges from the, the from that first few projects that you had have those largely been solved or what what's the, what's the current state of the land for for doing sound for VR right now? Yeah, quite a few of the of the initial issues have been uh, has have been at least addressed. Uh, I wouldn't say they're all solved, but uh, but we're at least at a point where we can we can relatively easily create content. And get it out to the world and have them view it in the proper way. That was definitely not the case uh, when when we started in 2014. There there was really there wasn't a portal where you could see it. Uh, you know, where the public could see it. Gear VR didn't exist yet. Um, Oculus didn't well, hadn't been released or didn't exist yet. Or it existed but cloaked. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the tools that we use to, to create the experiences, uh, have, have definitely moved forward, uh, in, in their usability and, uh, and their feature sets. So, uh, so we're very happy about that, but, but there's more work to, to be done, um, to be sure, you know, uh, my vision anyway about how we should be working in virtual reality is actually with an augmented reality system. Where we uh, where we're able to view our current uh, you know mixing consoles and uh, and what it is that we're doing uh, our work with, and we're um, also able to view the virtual reality uh, content that we're working on or the augmented reality content that we're working on uh, in an augmented reality system, so that uh, that we don't have to leave our yeah. reality, put the headset on, view what it is that we're working on, then put the headset down. Yeah, it's, it's cumbersome. It's uh, we're jumping ahead a little bit because I, I wanted to ask you sort of a, <clears throat> how how these productions flow through. But sure. the first time I watched you guys work, the first thing that popped out at me was like, oh, you have to take you have to take the headset off in order to see the mixing console to actually mix. It seems obvious, you know, that yeah. you once you think, think about, about it for th- two seconds, it was like, yeah, how do you, how do you, you know, you're basically mixing blind. Right. Right. So for, you know, I think a, a lot of people who uh, are in our audience that listen to this podcast know quite a bit about, you know, a traditional sort of post-production model. So sure. can you just walk us through? So I guess, first of all, most of the stuff that you guys are working on this 20% of your business, that's, that's VR. I'm, I'm presuming that's kind of linear, cinematic, uh, uh, mostly narrative. It's split. Pieces. Actually, it's split. We 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 have three areas of, of VR that we work in. We work in uh, game-based VR. Okay. We work in cinematic VR, and we work in live broadcast VR. So. Oh, I want to I want to talk about the differences in each one of those, but mm-hmm. just for the sake of simplicity. So, if we're talking about a, a cinematic linear uh, piece, right. how does that come to you, and and how does that how does that workflow work, and how is it different from a traditional kind of workflow? Well, um, how the jobs come to us are through relationships mostly. Uh, I've made a point uh, since day one at Jaunt to develop the relationships uh, that. You know that help us along in that uh, arena. Just making sure people know they have an audio option. Um, quite a few people have been focused on the visuals and how to achieve the the uh, the, the, the camera work and um, you know all the technical details surrounding that. They they forget that they need sound. So <laughs> so I, I I try and you know inject that information to them early. And I've been making these relationships for the last two years pretty solid. Uh, so, so that's how those th- those jobs are coming to us. Is yeah. That people know that's what we do, and that we have the experience, uh, having done you know upwards of fifty of these uh, experiences now. 
you know, we, we know what the pitfalls are. We know how to help direct people through the process, uh, right. through production, uh, you know, file management, post-production. <clears throat> well, let's start a production. Um, so you've got, a, you've, got, you know, you've got a team out in the field recording, mm-hmm. typically with a 360 uh, camera rig. Um, sure. And, and so that obviously, you know, you start off with some questions right there, which is, where do you put the crew? Mm-hmm. Where do you put the microphones? Oh, yeah. Where, so, <laughs> what? How, so, what's what's the conversation that you have with these with these uh, production folks about about capturing sure. uh, sound in the field? Uh, okay, so the the conversation goes something like this: um, <laughs> what, what, You need sound. What's what's your script? <laughs> what's your script? Uh, and let's let's go over it and see where we have opportunities for sound. And let's go over it and make sure we understand that in your setups, you're not impeding sound's ability to capture on the set. Uh, and you know there are there are considerations that happen um, at that point that they haven't even thought of visually yet because they haven't they haven't some of the people haven't been through it yet, and so they don't even know from a camera standpoint and what the challenges <clears throat> are going to be. And they're be. just trying to figure out how the hell do we do this thing. They're just trying to figure it out. So, so we, we basically audio direct, and we say, get us involved right from the beginning before you start shooting. We, we go over the script with them. We say, Here's, here are, your, are the concerns from an audio standpoint. You might want to think about you know, this setup, this setup, this setup. Um, we would prefer that you do it this way uh, in, in this particular case. Are you going to use... Uh, a jaunt camera? Are you going to use a Nokia Ozo? Are you going to use your own proprietary camera? Are, do you have a GoPro rig? You do some of it 360. Or you can do some of it, um, you know, in stereoscopic. Does that, mix? Does, does that affect how you capture sound on a set? It, it does. Be, and the main reason it does is that we have to be as stealth as everybody else. When the, when the crew scatters, while we can't, not only can we not have, um, you know, any microphones in, in, in a 360 uh, image, but we also don't want any cables. Right. And so there are you power, a, power considerations. There's no, there's no boom guy there. There's no yeah. boom guy. Yeah, that's, <laughs> right. that's not happening. Uh, not, not, not an option. Uh, so, uh, so for example, if they're going to use a jaunt camera, we know the jaunt has a certain dimension. And that dimension allows us to put a certain type of mic rig underneath the camera at camera position. Because there's a blind spot. There's a blind spot at the bottom. Got uh, it. And, and, and the jaunt... Uh, there's there's a you know there's a like a spot logo that they put at the bottom of the experience. So when you look straight down, you're you seeing it. You see a logo. You see right. kind of a logo, and so people will use that for branding. Jaunt has been using it to brand their own, um, you know, camera rig and whatnot. But when people actually use the Jaunt camera to to do that, they can either fill it with a plate of information. So so you're kind of floating in air. You like you'll you'll right. Maybe, see the ground right. below you right but it, it can be very uh disorienting for people to feel like they're floating like when yeah. they look down it can make them a little ill yeah uh so uh so one of the other options that they give is to just make a blind spot down there and sometimes the 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 uh the uh, uh the producers and the directors want the blind spot there anyway because they need to hide some stuff down there too sure <laughs> you know they have uh, battery packs and you know, other, uh, you know, camera-oriented things that need to sit down there underneath the tripod. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, so you can hide some shotgun mics down there maybe or we, whatever. Well, or, yeah. we, we usually put an ambisonic mic at, okay. at camera position. If it's a multi-camera shoot, we'll have an ambisonic mic. At and an ambisonic mic, for those who don't know, is basically, it's it's uh, omnidirectional? Yes. It, it's, it's basically a specific format uh, of, of recording that allows you to have some flexibility in post where uh, there are tools out there to, to allow you to manipulate that image uh, after the fact, um, kind of like a dual MS setup or something, but, um, but it's, a, it's a specific WXYZ format that mm-hmm. was developed in the 70s. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, there, and so, so just the geometry of the camera rig Make, makes us make a decision about what mic rig we're going to put uh, underneath the camera. So uh, if we can, we'll use a sound field mic mm-hmm. uh, under camera position because we like the quality of the audio that's associated with those microphones. But if we have a Steadicam shot uh, and uh, you know we've got uh, a Steadicam operator who is concerned about weight on his rig, um, yeah, we're not going to use the sound field because it's just too bulky and, um, uh, and heavy. So then we'll use a, a little Tetra mic, which is a really small version of an Amazonic microphone uh, at camera position while he's move, moving around uh, in, 
360 space. So. And do you also have uh, wireless mics on your on your performers? Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's the other part of the part of the equation. And the production sound mixer is somewhere off out of range. Right? That's the that's the other thing. I mean, number one, we can't have any cables, so that means everything's wireless. And number two, we don't have any boom, which means that typically boom and and lav are kind of uh, uh, redundancies for each other. Right. But without the boom, that you means know, you don't yeah. have you don't have any redundancy. So now now you're 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 double challenged. You don't have a redundancy on on uh, on the lab side, and you have to be further away from uh, from mic position because you can't be seen by the camera. Right. Right. So right. it could be anywhere from just around the around that little corner, four or five feet away, or in some other kind of shot, you might be. 30, 40, 50 feet away. Mm-hmm. And so you've got even more challenges now uh, put mm-hmm. on that. Then um, you're subject to RF interference wireless, and exactly. all those sorts of things. More challenges on the wireless system. So, so, so then, you know, from, from uh, our standpoint, we, we don't want problems in post. <laughs> we want this to be captured as accurately and as high quality as possible. So, But it's a lot harder to get good audio, get, yeah. to get good production tracks in VR. Yeah, in that respect, it is. It, 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 there are a lot of different things, but but one of the challenges is 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 the robust uh, you know wireless aspect and keeping the redundancy. So we invested in a system that has uh, that uh, that has a little uh, microchip at the microphone itself, so that it records directly at the mic and it records wirelessly. So if we have any problems with the wireless, we uh, the you've wireless got a, transmission. You've got, a, you've got a local. We actually do have a local backup. Yeah. Right. So so to us, that's a critical system. Um, that's clever. Yeah, it's very, very clever. I, you know, we're happy they, that a company decided <laughs> to do that. There's only one. And, uh, yeah, so, so we employ that system, uh, you know, religiously yeah. on VR sets. And so then they move into post-production and is the, is the, is the edit. So what's the editing process, uh, for you in, in, in post-production? Is it, is it sort of echo a traditional model? Do they, do they go off on and edit and lock the picture and then hand it over to you or? How does that how does that work? You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, we 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 benefit from the difficulties associated with the visuals because the options to change right now are are very few and far between at the last minute. Right. Last minute changes in VR. Are, are kind of an oxymoron because if you change something at the last minute, then you've got to push your deadline out because to stitch more video at that high quality level. This turns out to have a great benefit for you because they're not changing picture until the last second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so you know, that will, will change with auto stitching and people who are less concerned about the perfection of those stitches. Uh, the, you know, the last 15% of perfection costs a lot of money. Sure. Uh, you can get to 75% or 80% uh, these days uh, of, of, a, of a stitch you know, almost automatically. And so for the people who are creating content who are okay with that 80%, they'll be able to make their changes at the last second, just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the people who really want that perfection and, uh, you know, don't want your eye to be caught at all with any of the stitch lines, uh, we, we do benefit from the fact that they really have to do that <laughs> stitching ahead of time, mm-hmm. you know? So we, we have more, more time with, final picture so to speak yeah now that being said even in those circumstances i mean we're working on projects uh as we speak where uh where we're working with you know traditional uh film directors who are not used to having to make those those decisions like that so their entire uh process of evaluating footage of uh, making their creative decisions are all so well uh, uh, conditioned by traditional film, right? That um, that they are applying those exact habits to VR and stumbling because the minute that they, you know, they they're <clears throat> used to making last second decisions. You know, it's almost like a forced uh, creative decision. Uh, oh, you're putting a deadline on me. All right, I'll have to I have to really look at this now. And well, make and also they have decisions. to really wrap their head around. It's a completely different aesthetic, right? You can't, sure. you, you can't, sure. you can't cut the way you're used to cutting. No. You know, you're you're not using close-ups in the same way. It's really, it's really a completely different visual language. It is, it is, and and for those who have decided to tackle it, uh, they're all experimenting 
yeah. right now, really. I mean, and this is going to be going on for quite a while as, uh, you know, more established directors who are focused on doing, you know, traditional media film and, and uh, you know, game work or whatever. Uh, and they, they start dabbling in VR. We're going to see, again, more experiments. They, they don't know what to do with this yet. Uh, they need to get an idea of how to, how to wrangle it. So, so we'll be working on projects with, with you know, directors, established directors yeah. uh, that essentially are proof of concepts for them. Right. You know, and that's, that's going to go on for well, a while. It's interesting because I think a lot of people have been saying, well, you know, this is going to be interesting to see what happens with VR when we get it into the hands of, you know, professional right. narrative storytellers. Absolutely. And that is an interesting possibility, but at the same time, they've got to unlearn yes. a lot yes. of, you know, of the, the, the tricks of the trade that they're used to using. Right. No, that, that's true. I mean, just as a quick example, one of the things in sound that we noticed immediately on the very first project uh, that we worked on with Jaunt is that uh, creating energy in a 360 space is a very different thing than creating energy in a 5.1 or stereo in, in type environment. It's, it's a whole lot easier to create energy in the more traditional formats. But in 360, y you don't have the same buildup of energy in some one location. You're talking about buildup of energy using like, um, like tones and ambiences or like a, like a bit of a subwoofer or like, what do you, what do you mean? Well, I, what I'm saying is that um, when in, in, a, in a film, for example, um, we, we have a big rectangle in front of us. Right. And, and, and so from a physical standpoint, we use the, 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 the space between the left edge of the screen and the right edge of the screen and the top edge and the bottom edge of the screen as the place where we focus the most energy, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's where the visual exists it's, and, and it's where we get our information story-wise. And even from an audio perspective, you know, probably 80% of the information is coming from the center channel. Well, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, uh, even, yeah, even so, the, even the center channel is doing a lot of work. Right. A lot of film, you know, people are putting the dialogue in the center. They're not putting a lot of sound effects in the center, but right. they're still in that rectangle shape, automatically putting lots of energy in, in, into that rectangle, mm -hmm. right, um, in the theater. So in VR, we don't have that rectangle. Right. So, um, so we're, we're accustomed to putting tracks together in a way that are, are layered and put together in such a way as to make sure that that rectangle is filled with the right energy, mm -hmm. right? And then, you know, people use the surrounds as support, typically. They're not generally using the surrounds uh, as big storytelling right. um, space right. back here. So, uh, and there are mixers who, you know, certainly exploit the surrounds, and, and we love those guys. <laughs> you know, the more the, the better, uh, as far as I'm concerned. But it's not uh, always appropriate to the story. It's not always appropriate, and it can be distracting to the story. Right. Yeah, so, but in VR, since, it, since we don't have any particular There's no frame. There is no frame. There's no place for us to focus our energy uh, in in the story, and so so that gets spread out across 360 degrees of space. And for audio, that means that um, that it can feel um, a, a, a little uh, what's the word like underwhelming, like diffused, or a little yeah. diffused, or yeah. not as energetic. Right. Right. So you have to go further and out of your way to try and prop up that energy in 360 space because you may have a big chunk of space over to your right that has nothing going on. Right. And it's awkward for people to hear, uh, to hear things in that way. It, it, it throws, throws you off on your overall perception of energy uh, in the space. So, so we have to think about these things. And we, you know, we have made a point to fill some of those negative spaces with sound. Yeah. Whether it's relevant to the story or not, we we can't ignore it. Right. Right. Because we, it's there. It, yeah. It's there. It's affecting our perception of what's going on in other areas of the 360 space. And but, as, so so this is all moving. Right. Right. It's all shifting and moving at all times. So when so when the 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 action may shift from you know from the left side of the of, of the sphere to the right side of the sphere well the left side now is is the negative space right and so so it's a constant um, process of updating our energy as we go 
But sound in this in this world ha- has um, it has an interesting possibility that it doesn't really have in in traditional uh, cinema you know cinema based narrative, which is because you're existing in a three sixty field, you can actually you can use the sound as a tool to direct the attention of the audience to something that you want them to see. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, that well, <laughs> this is going to get into another thing that I've talked about before, but I'll, I'll talk about it here again as well for the benefit of the viewers. Um, there's something that I call persistence of information. And when, when we first get into a virtual reality experience, uh, most of us, because we're conditioned to see media on, on rectangles, either our phone, uh, the, the TV, theater, right. TV, our, our computers, they're all rectangles. So we're, we're just, we're, we're so conditioned to look somewhere for our information and kind of fix ourselves in that position. Uh, so, so I tell directors right out of the gate, you need to calibrate the viewer right when they get into VR for the first time, because most of the people right now who, who are going to watch your, your experience will not be sophisticated VR listeners. For a long time now, yeah. we're going to be, have millions of people coming online, listening and, 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 and viewing VR experiences for the first time. Right. So for quite a while now, you're, we're going to need to get people accustomed to listening and, th- and thinking about things in a different way. So the very first thing that I try and encourage directors to do, maybe in the first 30 to 60 seconds of their experience, is to immediately calibrate the viewer that you are not going to get your information just from one area. Mm. You're going to get your information from all directions. So immediately get them used to that, right? So that when you do want them to look behind them based on, a, on an audio cue, they know that there could be a really important piece of information back there. Because if you don't, if you allow them to, to get comfortable with a certain area, it could be, could be 110 degrees of information, it could be 180 degrees of information, but if they get too comfortable in this area where they, there's a persistence of information that you're giving them, mm-hmm. when you need them to look behind or you need them to react to, a, to an audio cue, they will not react even if it's really loud because they know the most important information is going to be happening over here. It's really interesting. I'd never thought about that, but it's, I'm thinking about my own experience of watching VR, I mean, the first few VR pieces. My first thing was like, okay, where am I supposed to look? Okay, okay, I get it. That's kind of in this field. Right. And I kind of and settle they, in. And you settle in. Yeah. Right. And that's the thing. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't believe that, um, that, that there's any one way that we should be uh, using VR as a as a, as a media, I think I think it should be used in whatever way people feel creatively they want to use it. But I will say that if your intent is to is to in 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 the trajectory of the overall experience is if your intent is to have them looking around in all directions, uh, eventually in your experience, you you should really calibrate them relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they'll miss important pieces of information. I mean, if you're going to give them visuals that are going to be behind them, they'll, they'll completely miss it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, completely miss it. Not even, even if with, with a loud, uh, they won't turn around. Cue, they just won't turn around. That's yeah. interesting. They won't turn around. So what's the, um, let's talk a little bit about the mixing process and how that works, uh, or in, 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 in some ways doesn't work very well. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, in, in, in the traditional model, uh, your sound editors have gone off, they've prepared their tracks and then you move into, uh, you move into a mixing stage, um, uh, which historically has been channel based, but now with, mm-hmm. uh, Dolby Atmos from the, the object based systems, um, is moving away from that, but it's still, it's still a traditional box sure. that you go in, and that's where you make decisions about where sounds are placed and EQ levels and and various loudness levels. Um, how how does that process work in VR? You know, we've we've moved in and out of different processes uh, over the last couple of years. Um, one of the things that we've come to really understand acutely is that um, that we need to do some research on the headphone side uh, ourselves because there are just so many different uh, headphones with different EQ curves associated with them that we haven't come across one that um, that has a kind of a global um, translation of, of, of all the media that uh, the different outlets and the different uh, media that we create. Uh, so so what that means basically is that um, 
is that we're relying on our speaker systems for a while, uh, set up in, um, in the, the in-room monitoring system, the speakers in the room. Mm-hmm. About. Speakers okay. in the room. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, when we use Atmos, we use uh, our our speakers, our small our small room speaker setup uh, in Atmos to be able to really understand uh, how things are going to translate because we know the speaker system, we know how that translates to different environments and whatnot. Uh, the headphones are, you know, uh, we just have to do more research. I know there's there's good stuff out there, and that's one of the problems, that there's just so many different good ones Yeah. Uh, that there's an evaluation that needs to happen. In, in other words, rather than mix on headphones. Because nobody likes to mix on headphones. Well, I mean, but no. That's, but, the, but the truth is... It doesn't bother me. Almost but... all of the audience, that's how they're experiencing the pieces, yes. right? So yes. all, all the flavors of VR today are really... You, you put on the you, you put on the visor right you, you put on the headphones right. and that's how you experience it this is true this is true but that's such a dramatic difference between one headphone and to the next right. if somebody's got beats you know the low frequency information that we put into an experience will be reproduced on a set of beats headphones completely different from a Harman set completely mm-hmm. different from uh, from a Bose set completely different from uh, a pioneer set. It's it, and this is a big problem for us because the perception of how uh, how our experiences play uh, is directly related to the quality of the headphones. Right. You know. And certainly, and we, if they're looking, if they're doing Google Cardboard with a set of earbuds, it's there. You go. I mean, yeah. the good news is that uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the generation that is is coming up is used to hearing crappy audio, and I say that. <laughs> We we have some time. This breaks my heart. I know it's terrible. We it, it, but we have some time to sort out how to um, how to calibrate ourselves. That Optimi- way. Optimize experience. how to optimize that. And and uh, you know we're we're audio professionals. We we know how to get to you know eighty percent, ninety percent pretty easily. But when you know Beats has a uh, you know has a and they're not all like this. You know, there's certain models have. EQ curves where they have, you know, a, a 3 dB bump at uh, 80 hertz. Right. You know. Because you got to have that kick and bass. Exactly. You know, they're 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 counting on the musicians and the you know uh, and the and, and the hip hop artists and whatnot to exploit that. Right. Um, and and people love bass, right? So, uh, but the, for for a piece of cinematic, uh, you know, it soundtrack, just, yeah, that's a disaster. It, it turns to mud. That's a disaster. Yeah. So, uh, so we we have to sort out. Um, our own recommendations. And I think as a community, we also need to uh, uh, sort out for the public what they should be listening on so that they don't have to try and and willy-nilly just choose what looks cool, Mm -hmm. but they can say, all right, this is a set of headphones that you use for VR, and and this is why. Mm -hmm. Because all of the people who are creating the content are using one of these four sets of headphones, right? Right. right. These are the approved ones. So we, w- this is work that we need to do as an industry. Yeah, is help sort that out for the consumer. Yeah. So you're so you're mixing and say for the sake of argument that you're in a, a, a near field Atmos mm-hmm. room and you're monitoring through the the, the in wall speakers. Yeah, you're mixing. We, we do both. You know, I'll, I'll I'll switch between the headphones, the headphone binaural render and speakers yeah so, so i was about to say forth. at what point do you sort of like because then you had the added layer of complexity of of at some point you need to start making decisions about like well if i move my head things track so how does that how does that get inter- introduced into the into the mixing process well right now um we're the the uh the binaural render that we listen to is not head tracked so this is another reason why it's good for us to be able to reference headphones because all we have to do is turn our heads and everything is where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, on the speakers. Right. Uh, right. So in the room, we can we can just look around. Sure. And we don't need to rely on any tech for it to head track. It's it's right. already automatically doing it, right? Yeah. Uh, so um, you know, so so we have those two uh, scenarios uh, and. Um, you know, over time, we'll be able to get real-time head tracking as well. But for the time being, anyway, in the systems that we use, there's there's no real-time head tracking while we're mixing. Right. Yeah. 
we can get the binaural render in real time, but the head tracking is so there's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of guesswork in the in the mixing process. Yeah, a little bit, and and although you know it's it, it, it's fair to say that uh, that we haven't um, used every system that's out there either. So right. there are different ways to do this stuff, uh, and and we haven't uh, you know we haven't uh, for example uh, we don't really get involved in the PC-based solutions. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, presumably some PC-based uh, solutions to cinematic VR that we're just not familiar with that yeah. may have solved some of these other problems. That, um, I'm curious, um, the, the, the language, the visual language and the audio language is so, so different from, from traditional um, storytelling. What's the role of music in, in cinematic VR? It's it's really just starting to, you know, people are just starting to look at that as, yeah. as the fact that it can play a different role. Uh, I'm personally very excited to see what we can do with that. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the projects we're working on right now are are exploring these alternate ways of dealing with, with score. Because uh, I've, I've definitely heard people say, you know, I think there, there, I think there are certain less creative people who say, well, you can have diegetic music, you know, music that's naturally existing in the space through a radio or whatever that you actually see. But sure. you, but you shouldn't, there's no, there's no room for traditional scoring in, in, in cinematic VR. I highly disagree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that, that defines cinematic VR is, <laughs> is, a, is a, is a good score. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can be, it can be anything any, any film would be. Uh, and you know, evoke the kind of emotions and feelings that any film would. Uh, so uh, you know, it, it's the spatial placement. That's what's awkward for people. How do you place the music? Where do you a, put it? Where do you put it? <laughs> right? Yeah. Where do you put it? If if your goal is to is to create an experience that is of an emulation of some other reality, when you put music into, no matter where you spatialize it. When you put music into a space, you're you, then you're being told I should be feeling like this, or right. um, it's a cue for it's a cue that yeah. you're not in um, a real space anymore. So there there are people who are focused on doing um, uh, virtual reality experiences that are direct uh, transportations of of you to another reality. And, and those people are kind of purists where they will say, it, the minute that you put a piece of music in here, that's... that's it's, a, it's artifice. It, it, it separates you from... Yeah, you're, you're would you already say, in a narrative. So you did, you did Rose, Rose Trochet's piece, yes. uh, Perspective 2, which premiered at Sundance um, yes. uh, earlier in the year. Uh, and that was a really interesting piece because it was basically, it was a story about um, a police shooting, uh, you know, robbery kind of situation. And the thing that Rose did that was really interesting from a narrative standpoint is, is sort of a Rashomon kind of way. You, you, you can experience the piece several different times from different perspectives of the people who participate. But that's kind of what you're talking about in terms of that's, there's sort of a, of a verite aspect that she was trying to, to get at. I don't remember. Was there any kind of, there was no music in that, no, was there? No. So the whole point was we want this to be as authentic and realistic and transportive an experience as possible. Right, right, right. Yeah, in that, in that case, you know, Rose was really focused on uh, trying to evoke the emotion of and, and reveal something about people in the context of this uh, altercation that that happens between the police and the and the and the, the two brothers, uh, and the whole point of it was to was to blur the lines of empathy mm -hmm. uh, for her. Right. It, we 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 want to feel like the cops were justified. We want to feel like the 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 kids were wronged, right? In both in this in the same experience, mm -hmm. and then we're left kind of. Uh, unnerved yeah. about the whole process that we can see how these things can happen uh, that in a split second a decision can be made that that can have these kind of ram ramifications uh, so that was a super intense piece it was a very it was, it was very emotional yeah. it was but you don't have I think for a lot of storytellers music would be a way to kind of heighten that that sense of tension that sure. kind of you know but you don't but have then you're that in a movie but then you're in a movie but you don't movie. have that as a crutch so from a sound yeah. perspective what did you do to kind of 
take the audience to that same heightened emotional place if you don't have the the crutch of music to sure to sure uh, well I mean certainly good filmmaking is is a, is a big part of it you have to make the right choices in terms of ed- editorial and pacing uh, and um, performance obviously and performance of course uh, so so starting with those decisions which are what I would call more traditional uh, storytelling filmmaking decisions uh, you know. And there were a lot. There was a lot of discussion about how to go about this project, and you know, and, and Rose struggled herself with trying to piece everything together in a way that was compelling, and um, you know, and uh, uh, you know, didn't didn't fall flat in, in right. you know any one particular spot. But you know, we did all sorts of things uh, in that project. Uh, you know, in, in sequences prior to the um, uh, to the actual shooting, for example. We had we had energy that we we wanted to uh, ev- evoke, right? So one of the things that we did was, um, as the uh, you know during during the the, the police officers' uh, perception of the neighborhood was different from the kids' pers- perspective of the neighborhood. So when we were so they're hearing different things. They're hearing different things in the neighborhood, right? right? So so the cops hear a ghetto, not ghetto. That's the she hates when I use that word. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of an urban, deep urban, uh, troubled area is right. what, is, is what so the, they, the cops heard. But they're, they're hearing th- maybe threatening things. They're the hearing threatening things. So that put but, them on an alert. But the kids, right. this is their neighborhood. Right. This is where they grew up. So when we were in the kids' perspective, we had birds, the kids playing right. in the background. This is what they hear. They hear a non-threatening environment. This is where they live. Sure. You know? So, uh, so... Just doing those two things back and forth, depending on what perspective we were seeing at the time, uh, you know, which camera we were, whose head we were on. Yeah. Uh, without any performance, without any other thing, you just take take all the voices away and just listen to the background track. Just the backgrounds alone were were shifting like this back and forth between a threatening environment for the cops and, you know, a, a, a calm environment for the kids. And that's something that, you know, the audience may not be consciously no, aware of, but it's no. having a profound effect on them. Exactly. So it makes you feel more more uptight, more nervous. You hear, you know, people shouting, you know, across the street. Mm-hmm. They're having an argument. You hear more sirens. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, as as things were moving toward the, the moment of, uh, of altercation, we had uh, dogs barking. Uh, you know, one dog would start barking, and then and then another dog would start in over here, mm-hmm. uh, barking at the other dog, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And these things you these, just create this sense of chaos and this building this that. tension, building, yeah. building, building yeah. until that moment where uh, where they finally you yeah. know start fighting with each other. Yeah. So what are you what are you looking forward to in terms of how the process is going to advance? What are, what are you what do you think is coming that's going to make the the job easier or uh, more engaging for the audience? Well, certainly. I mean, I, I would say there are two two uh, aspects to that question. The first is, w- what do we see in terms of tools to make our job easier? Right. There, there are so many uh, companies involved in making tools and uh, and and different uh, processes for us. Uh, you know, I, I can imagine that within a year's time, we'll we'll be even more. Uh, in in a in a position to be able to smoothly create. Um, uh, virtual reality content on par with how we do it for traditional media. Mm-hmm. I'd say we probably need another year. Mm-hmm. Um, we need some kind of way to be in virtual space while we're working. While you're working. That yeah. might take a little longer, but for the time being anyway. And it can, could be some sort of AR thing with overlays so that you can still see the mixing console, but have the, yep. have the, have the yep. yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I had my druthers, I'd, I'd call HoloLens and have mm-hmm. them uh, develop an app uh, for me, that would uh, allow me to see, uh, you know, the 360 video uh, in 360 uh, in the Hololens while I was able to, you know, continue look down at the, yeah, yeah, look yeah. down and continue my work. So, um, just haven't had a chance to talk to those guys. Anybody listening, <laughs> give me a call. You you can, you can make a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, you know, beyond that, um, you know. I'm starting to see, finally starting to see some uh, experiences that are that are using virtual reality as a um, almost as a 
as a, a genre within itself. Hmm. They are using VR to depict VR experiences in, inside of the actual experience. So the characters are viewing things in VR, are uh, viewing things in AR, okay. right? It's, it's, it's a future vision rather than uh, using it as an empathy machine right. to uh, show you some, what someone else's life is like or to, um, to transport you to some uh, location that you may have never seen before. These guys are using it as a vision of the future to say, okay, well, we're, you know, we're, we're not in today's time, but we're somewhere in the future and, we, and we're integrated. We're using VR and AR every day. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited to see experiences that are based around that, uh, because to me, the the being in VR to see people using VR and AR, that or, there's there's a there's a there's a synergy there, of storyline that um, that clicks. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm I'm very interested to see more of that kind of content, uh, and uh, and also interested to see higher levels of acting higher levels of production value, higher levels of directorial vision put on VR. Mm-hmm. Because every time I see a little chunk of it, of, of, of somebody who I know and is established uh, and, and, and dabbling, um, it's, it's like a little window into, yes, we, we need to go further down Here's that road. Here's what it could be. Yeah. Well, here's what it could be. And, you know, put all of those things, you know, onto VR that, that film already does. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it'll be, it will be amazing. It will be amazing, but it's, it's a money thing right now. There's, there's, in, very, what, in what sense? There's very little money to, uh, invest in that, in all that production value. Right. Because nobody's monetizing content right it's now. It's not, it's not happening on the other side. There aren't yeah. enough eyeballs. Right. You know, so a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines because of that reason alone. Yeah. They see the technology like, yeah, this is great, but you know, I got to be doing my high level projects over here. Sure. That make me the money that people I are dabbling right now. Yeah. There's, there's still a dabbling sense, but someone somewhere along the way has, has got to, you know, raise their hand and say, we believe this to be the future. We're going to pour big money into this. That is on par with normal feature film work. Yeah. Millions for one project. That's not happening. Yet. Well, I'm kind of curious. You, you, you talked earlier about, you know, you guys are working in, in, what right now is all three flavors of mm-hmm. VR. You got the cinematic stuff, um, you've got the game engine yeah. driven uh, material, and then you've got live right. VR. And I'm I'm just wondering if I mean this is a whole separate conversation, but it, it may be that one of those other one of those other genres mm. may take off. Oh yeah, in a much more dynamic way than cinematic uh, VR. But from your perspective. Yes. <clears throat> What are the differences in working in, in those three flavors? And, and I'm sure we could have a whole you know, hour-long sure, conversation just about that. We but certainly could. Just at, at a very basic um, thumbnail sketch, what are the differences between the, the, the three flavors? Well, the game-based VR, let's, let's take that one first since we haven't really talked about that. Um, in, in a lot of ways, that uh, looks like traditional game development. So, uh, so a lot of the um, skills that we use to do in-game work for the AAA games that we work on, um, same skills apply there. So it's 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 obviously it's non-linear, it's interactive. You're building you're building audio events in a game engine that, that are triggered by certain events happening in right. the gameplay. Right, and and the 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 main difference is that is that we make more detailed choices about spatialization, right. about how we're going to spatialize, and if we want to take um, you know, ambisonic recordings into that space and head track all, all of those mm-hmm. recordings that, you know, will complicate the process a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and how, how we spatialize and head track that material inside the game engine. But by and large, it's very much the same as making a game. Mm-hmm. So uh, not a huge amount of, of difference there. Uh, the cinematic... Uh, arena we've been talking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, changes to the production. Uh, uh, also, um, you know, um, making sure that uh, that we have separation on the set. And that's another sure. thing that's a real can be a real difficult thing if we have overlaps in in lavaliers. Yeah. Uh, so we have to talk to directors about that, about how they're how they're um, uh, blocking out their dialogue. Right. Uh, 
and if we can get them to not overlap each other, great. But for, let's say, a comedy troupe. That's what they're going to do. It's what they're going to do. Yeah. That's what makes it funny. We just have to deal with it. Um, so there's the tricky business there. Uh, and, of course, the challenges that we've talked about on the post-production side yeah. uh, to get the cinematic VR to, um, to work in the end. Right. Um, on the live uh, VR side, I mean, the, the main uh, challenges, of course, are being able to uh, cram that information down a pipeline that can actually be put out and broadcast. So right. um, for us, you know, our part of it is is mixing. Is this basically going to be sports? Is that kind of what we're talking about no, mostly, or what, what? 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 What would a what would a live piece of VR be? Sports for sure, for sure. It's, it's a gigantic market there, but uh, but also um, live music. Okay, live music. Um, and in fact, that's the one I'm mostly interested in. I would sure. love to to reinvent uh, how sports are being done because I'm not satisfied at all with the way sports broadcasts are yeah. um, are are uh, captured and delivered right now. Yeah. I, I think. I think there's uh, you know a lot of complacency in that um, uh, you know in in that uh, field. Uh, I think there's uh, a lot of reinvention that is possible. Sure. Um, that, some, te- that technology hasn't changed much. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, really, there's you know I won't go into it, but in, in a general sense, uh, I think that's ripe for reinvention. Um, I feel the same way about music and live music um, performance. And how that gets transmitted live, um, you know, on pay-per-views or uh, or just in general through a YouTube link or something. Uh, this is also something that um, we're very interested in completely reinventing. Most of the, if not all, of the live broadcasts that happen are either stereo or occasionally 5.1, but even rarely, very rarely 5.1. It's almost always just traditional stereo. So uh, what we want to do um, and on the live side is just reinvent that process entirely by um, you know, showing people what it would sound like if we were tracking everything in 360 space in real time mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and giving you know, everybody the proper perspective based on the camera position. Right. And that's a challenge. So we like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and of course, we're just talking about professional content. It seems like, mm. to a certain degree, sure. the, the Facebooks and the, and the Googles are really trying to encourage the start of, of an industry that doesn't really exist right now, which is user-generated content, content right. in VR. Right. And is that really just going to be basically? I mean, what do you do with that? Is that just that's just basically an ambisonic microphone setup, and you kind of it goes out that way? It goes, you know, any any which way. If someone's actually you know, sophisticated enough to have an ambisonic rig, yes, it can have, but, you know, the, the throw of the ambisonic microphones is only, uh, you know, a handful of feet. Yeah. Beyond five or six feet from the microphone, you're going to get more background noise and you're going to get dialogue. So, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be, I, th- I think anyway, just like other traditional media where uh, you're going to have a ton of, of low rent stuff out there, right? <clears throat> do-it-yourselfers having fun yeah. and posting to YouTube. Well, because none of the tools that you use that have been developed in the last couple of years are in any, even in the, the prosumer editorial systems like uh, like Adobe Premiere. Mm-hmm. There, there's really no way to do audio for VR within those platforms right now. Not really. I mean, people now that Facebook has bought uh, two big two ears, big yep. uh, they're there's a path for people to use uh, something that doesn't cost them anything in order to create a track like that, uh, an Amazonic track. But, um, you know, our belief is that Amazonic is a limited um, format and um, it's not uh, an object-based format. Right. Um, So... So very shortly here, what's going to happen is is that there's feature sets that will be available in other technologies that Ambisonic just won't be able to achieve. And eventually, certainly all the professionals will want the, the highest level of feature sets possible. Of course. So they'll reject Ambisonic as, an, as, as a distribution uh, platform for them, and they will go with other... Um, you know, other technology that offers them a, a, a more rich feature set. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. More ability to contour and change and more control over the process. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah more creative, yeah. you know, just Possibilities as well. more things they can do. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. So Tim, thanks very much for joining us today to talk about the, uh, 
kind of the state of the state for sound for virtual reality and, and all of its different flavors. It's been, uh, I've learned a lot today, so I, I appreciate your coming by and, and talking to us. This is Glenn Kaiser from the Dolby Institute, uh, wrapping up this episode of the podcast, uh, our co-production with uh, Mr. Michael Coleman and the Soundworks Collection. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks. Thanks so much.